Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Okay, so let's look at this guy, number 15351. He has dark brown wavy hair, six foot one, isn't afraid of taking chances or going to new places, half Dutch, half Filipino. Yay, Filipino. He's majoring in computer science, and the person he'd most like to have lunch with is Nikola Tesla, so that's cute. And, oh, you can have a vial of his sperm for just $995. Huh. It says here that you can see pictures of him as a child for an additional $145, and receive a facial features report and an audio recording of his voice for another $250. Okay, so this is the sort of stuff you can get from the thousands of donor profiles available online at sperm banks. And though donor is the medically appropriate term, doesn't really match the way that I would think of a charitable donation. Each of these guys is paid for his effort, and sperm and egg donation is a large and growing for-profit business in the U.S. Mm -hmm. And that business helps a lot of people like us become parents. About 30 to 60,000 children are born in the U.S. every year using donor sperm. And egg donations are involved in 9 to 10,000 births every year. Normally on this show, we focus on the infertile, the people like us who are reading these profiles and spending money to build their families. But this week, we want to take a look at infertility from another perspective. Specifically, the perspectives of people like number 15351. Why are they selling a part of their body? Is it just about the money? Is the money even worth it? And how do they feel years later about the experience? There was a mini fridge and there was a fridge magnet on it of a cartoon sperm with like a King Tut headdress. And all of that was really strange to me. And I got into this a little bit older than most of the people who were donating. I was already out of college and had already dropped out of grad school. And so I was in my mid-20s. And and so I felt weird going in in the first place. And then, like, I mean, I don't know if there's any easier way to say this. Like, having somebody, like, hand you a cup and be like, all right take your time, enjoy yourself. And then going into a room and having to jerk off into that cup. Like I did it for a year and that never stopped being weird and awkward. That voice you just heard is Brian Brown. I met Brian in a television writer's room four years ago. It was the first big writing gig for both of us. And we bonded over our anxiety about doing a good job and our desire to get our careers off on the right foot. Now, years later, Brian's doing great, writing for both television and feature films, but he's always been open about what a struggle it was to land that first job. Only a year or so before I met him, Brian needed money to keep his dreams of being a writer alive, and he found an unusual solution. So I was working this job that I was miserable at and I was not very good at, um, but it was my first like real job since dropping out of grad school. Um, and so I was desperately looking for something else. And one of the problems with the job was that I wanted to be a writer. And so I'd spent every 
every sort of day since dropping out of grad school, I'd spent writing. And when I got this job, I, I couldn't write at all. And so it was like, okay, I want to look for jobs where I don't have to go to work that often. Well, I remember we were looking on Craigslist. Like I was looking in every different category of jobs and like making a list of what could possibly be a, an opportunity for you. And sperm donation came up like 45 minutes into the listing. And you're like, you know what? Actually, maybe that. Yeah. I mean, I, I don't remember if this is true or if this is the joke that we're always telling, but I remember you asking me, like, what is it that you miss most from before, from the time before you had this job? And I said, writing and jerking off. And you said, well, we can't get you a job writing. That other voice you just heard was Sue Andres Brown, Brian's wife. She's the founder and head of a charter school here in LA. At the time, she was working as a high school teacher and trying to help support Brian's screenwriting ambitions without running out of cash. But it wasn't just about the money. The more they researched sperm donation, the more Brian came around to the altruism of it. I wanted to have kids so badly. Like, I wanted to be a dad so badly. And I couldn't imagine being in a position where I wanted that and had everything sort of in my life in line to do that. And then something like physically or medically made it impossible. And the idea of helping somebody out of that situation was really appealing to me in the end. So when it started out as a joke and I sort of found that within it, and I think that really shifted everything and it became a lot more serious to me then. Okay, so I don't know about you right now, but this is sort of what I was expecting and hoping to hear. Like, yes, there's money. But there's also a genuine desire to help others. Yeah, I think that Brian is what most people want to imagine when they use a sperm donor. Someone young and smart with a bright future who is doing the donation for the right reason, but who can also benefit from the money. No one wants to think their sperm donor is getting a quick 50 bucks to play the slot machine. They want to imagine the donor is, you know, a young cash-strapped Einstein getting some money together so we can buy chalkboards or whatever scientists use to do physics. Right. I noticed when I was scrolling through the profiles that a lot of people say that there are like medical school residents or pharmacy school residents, uh, dentists, mm -hmm. people in school doing training for something really prestigious. But Brian doesn't have a completely rosy view of the process. I mean, we know how unpleasant it was for you to give sample after sample for all of our infertility treatments. And at this point, it's sort of a standard part of the personal infertility narrative. You've got your tiny room, your disturbing porn, and a plastic cup. Well, it was the same for Brian, except that he was doing a lot more sampling. Well, I got into it like feeling like noble and like I was helping people. It immediately turned into a very sort of like demoralizing and sad process. It was not something that I would recommend. <laughs> like, it was not fun. Brian was doing the maximum number of donations twice a week. But there's actually more involved with that number than you'd think. You need to save up sperm for each donation, which means you can't have sex for several days beforehand. Right. It's not an ideal thing for a married man to be doing. <laughs> yeah. Uh, I had to basically abstain while doing it. And not only did it have an effect on his marriage, but as Brian explained... Sperm donations are not actually a consistent way to make money because the amount that you're paid can depend on the quality of your sperm that week. Quite often I was getting emails telling me that my uh, deposit was not up to snuff. Uh, and I get these really, these form emails. The subject line was like unusable sample. And 
it was this thing about how like my sperm count was not what it needed to be that day and like all the reasons why that might be whether it's like anxiety or like overexposure to heat because i was driving a car that had no air conditioning at the time uh, and i was definitely anxious about how much money were you making to not have sex with your wife and and have sex in a cup like what was the the financial remuneration Two hundred dollars a week. <laughs> if I was doing a good job, but usually just twenty. <laughs> so, as someone who could potentially be on the other side of that donation, I'm thankful that people like Brian are willing to put themselves out there and give and give and give. But then, as his friend, I'm kind of weirded out to hear how strange and sad the whole experience was for him. Yeah, it didn't sound great. But it is also the least invasive way to give reproductive cells to a couple or someone in need, which Brian actually knows intimately because around the same time that Brian was doing his sperm donations, Sue actually became an egg donor. That really surprised me at first, but if you go by all of those egg donor advertisements, Sue's actually the perfect person to donate eggs. She's six feet tall, slim, had high SAT scores, and is just an all-around smart, driven, and caring person. But she didn't seek out an opportunity to donate her eggs the same way that Brian did. Instead, it was actually her sister who needed the money. Sue's sister signed up to be an egg donor at an agency, and a family from Texas picked her out. But when she went to get some initial testing done, the clinic discovered that Sue's sister had hormone levels that made her incompatible with egg donation. And it was obviously really devastating for my sister um, on a number of levels, <laughs> um, and it was devastating for the family too, because they really had like formed this bond with my sister and felt like they had found their match and then she couldn't do it. And so they asked her like, do you have a sister? Um, and so she reached out to me and kind of explained the situation. She's like, would you be willing to do this? Um, and it was not something that I had really, you know, seriously thought about doing, but in this particular case, I felt, it felt so wrong not to, like I felt for this, family and what they were going through. And I think my sister's awesome. And I can understand like why they would want um, this connection. And so I was like, yeah, I'll do it. Egg donation is much more intense than they don't just give you a cup and you go in a room for 20 minutes. Yeah. So I, I understand that your, your sister had made this connection with this family. But what made you feel like, you know, having seen Brian sort of unhappy with his experience that you wanted to still go forward? Well, they definitely felt it, it was interesting. It, it was sort of an amusing coincidence to me that we both like became donors but they also felt like very separate distinct experiences and I never really thought I never connected the difficulties of his experience to the potential difficulties of my own like the main thing I was initially worried about was just would this affect my own fertility potentially and looking into that it seemed inconclusive but unlikely enough that I was like okay we should go forward it was definitely for me, the medical stuff and the injections and um, pills and stuff that I was supposed to take, I was mostly just stressed about messing it up. Like it felt so high stakes for the family. I was like, if I don't do this at the right time or if I like, I remember there was something with something I was supposed to inject and we did it wrong. So, Sue, so you felt kind of like 
an emotional obligation to this family almost like you like yes. they're they were counting on you and you took that really seriously yes very much so just that knowing one that they had made this like connection with my sister and really felt like they had found this perfect match and then two knowing how expensive this process is and knowing like this might be their only shot I don't know if they can afford another attempt like if this you know messes up either because I mess something up with the process or just because of you know the whims of fate um I'll feel really bad and will blame myself to some extent. Beyond her anxiety for the couple, Sue also wondered what the donation could mean for their own plans to have a family in the future. As much as I felt like an obligation to this family and I was definitely going to do it, a prickling sense of fear of what if when we try, we have trouble and what if it's because of this and I'll never know. Um, And it's just sort of like this calculated risk that we have to take. But it was a little bit scary in that way, in a way that the sperm donation never was. It never felt like a risk in that way. The fertility industry, and here I'm talking about the American Society for Reproductive Medicine, or the ASRM, says that the egg retrieval process is usually low risk for donors. However, there can be some potentially severe consequences for some of the women who go through the process, about less than 1%. They include things like internal bleeding, ovarian hyperstimulation syndrome, which is when your ovaries swell up, and ovarian torsion, which is when the ovary gets so big and heavy that it twists on itself, cutting off blood flow to the organ and fallopian tube. And those are just the immediate risks. Professor Diane Tober, a medical anthropologist at the University of California, San Francisco, she's been studying the impact of egg donation on donors. And here's what she said about the long-term outlook. Um, For egg donors, I think there's more potential health ramifications than there are for sperm donors because the process is much more involved. You have to inject uh, fertility hormones for several weeks. There are absolutely no studies that look at the impact of these fertility drugs on women's health over time. So you don't know what it is that you're injecting into your body or how it will affect you down the road. And this is despite the fact that people say research shows the risks are less than 1%. Well, nobody's done that research yet with egg donors. I mean, that's really disturbing to hear, especially for someone like me who's done multiple egg retrievals for our own IVF cycles. I I remember going through those short-term risks with our doctor and thinking, I don't care, I don't care, give me all the side effects, I just want to have kids, I'm 100% willing to take all of this on. Yeah, and I was also willing to let you take all of the risks on that too. Uh Ha-ha. But for another family's kids, if you were doing a donation... I don't know about that. It's not the same obvious calculus for me. I mean, thankfully, Sue actually ended up having a great experience without any side effects. And she's also been able to have her own children since then. So Brian and Sue are the happy kind of ideal scenario. They're this couple who really fit the definition of donor. They're doing it for the right reason. And they didn't run into any serious side effects. We still have to talk to them about whether years later they feel like the risks and discomfort of donating were worth the financial and emotional rewards. But first, we should hear from someone who didn't have such a great experience. My name is Katie O'Reilly. I'm based in Oakland, California. I'm 33 years old. And about nine years ago now, I got into a financial bind and donated my eggs to get out of that financial bind. Okay, now Katie is my friend. And around the time that I first met her would be the year that she was donating her eggs. But she never let on what she was going through. 
I was pretty underemployed at the time. It was 2009, kind of the Great Recession was still pretty fresh. And I was working an unpaid internship during the day and working at a bar at night. Uh, and then I turned 25 um, at the end of October. And I, um, I probably had a few too many birthday shots and I slipped on my way out of the bar and fell on my head and um, ended up being loaded into an ambulance. So I got a huge medical bill when I was uninsured and kind of just barely making ends meet. I should have mentioned also I was living in Los Angeles at the time. You know, I, I just remember coming home from the hospital and just freaking out and just, um, you know, kind of like brainstorming, get rich quick schemes online. I was looking into plasma donation. I was looking into like selling knives for pyramid scheme type startups. Um, and then I, I think it was actually looking at a Craigslist post for plasma donation that I remember the, the, the word donation triggered memories of being in college um, a few years prior and seeing tacked up all over the campus of Northwestern University in Evanston, Illinois, um, flyers seeking, you know, they'd say like exceptional women, like E-G-G-C-E-P-T-I-N-O-L, um, to make someone's dream come true. And they'd say, you know, like, do you, do you want to help a family create a miracle? Um, you know, looking, seeking altruistic young women with athletic ability and high SAT scores uh, to, you know, be be handsomely compensated, you know, for egg donation. And and Katie, just to give the listeners a picture about how much money were you trying to pay off at that moment? What was that ambulance hospital bill? You know, I actually didn't know what the bill was at the time, Anna. I was just kind of assuming the absolute worst. So I was at that point, I was still waiting for the bill to arrive. But I'm thinking, oh, you know, I'm going to need five, six thousand dollars. And I knew that egg donation paid usually between um, six and ten thousand uh, dollars. So I figured, OK, this will this will hopefully cover me. And then, you know, I'll have a little extra too. I can go on vacation or, you know, <laughs> have a meal that's not like a Taco Tuesday special. At this point, I want to break in and say how incredibly uncomfortable I was getting during the interview. As an infertile person, you don't want to think that someone is feeling forced to give up this really precious part of themselves just because we as a country don't think that healthcare is a right. I mean, she was scared about an ambulance bill. Yeah, it's worth noting that Katie's doing this in 2009, so this is pre-Obamacare. Unpaid internships are also very 2009. I mean, this, combined with her student debt, Katie was under a lot of pressure. Here's what Katie said it was like to try to get accepted to the egg donation agency while trying to hide how desperate she was. After filling out a form online and sending in a bunch of baby and current photos of herself, the agency called her in for her interview and mental health evaluation. I remember they opened the door and they were all like beaming smiles and they were like, oh, my gosh, like you look just like your pictures. This is such an absolute delight. Like, please come in. And right away they said, oh, you're super donor material. And I was like, what is that? <laughs> they were, and they said, oh, it's, you know, it's 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 women with a specific quotient of like like beauty and brains and family backgrounds. And. I remember being really, really flattered at the time. I mean, in, in retrospect, I'm sure they tell absolutely everyone that. And I think that the we only accept 5% of donor applicants is probably, I, I have a lot of reason to doubt that because there's huge demand for donor eggs and it's only gone up since 2009. They pressed record and they were like, okay, let, let's just have like a really candid conversation. And so it was, you know, they started asking about like, why, why do you want to donate? What is your drive? And I didn't, I didn't know this like 
as fact, but I'd kind of picked up from reading their donor testimonials on their website and that sort of thing that it probably wouldn't behoove me to be like, uh, I drunkenly fell on my head, um, you know, and I like haven't paid my student loan payments in a couple months either. So I was just like, oh my gosh, you know, I've just always just if I like I really feel for people who are trying to have children and have difficulty with with it and you know if I have something within me that can help someone else like nothing would make me more fulfilled than sharing that so I was I was kind of telling them what what I sensed was exactly they wanted to hear and they're like oh great and they were like so tell us about your family tell us about you know your childhood growing up and you know I'm thinking in my head about like my like broken like child of divorce home and um just kind of just kind of just totally rose washing everything I'm like oh you know like my parents always encouraged us all to be really different and we'd have a lot of spirited debates at the dinner table not like we like screamed at each other constantly but then at the end of the conversation she was like all right she's like you're a great candidate and I'm not really supposed to tell I'm not really supposed to tell applicants this but you know I we already have a family in mind for you they are this pair of British barristers and they've been waiting a really really long time and you know they're really they're really smart and they love to read and um you know we'd we think you'd be a great match for them and so I'm like all right that's that's cool and they're like so we need you to take a psychological assessment so they led me into this dining room and sat me down um with this like sheaf of papers and I was so nervous I was like are they gonna like put notes to my head and like figure out whether I've been like lying or rose washing um but it was really it was so stupid it was just going through this questionnaire and like rating on a scale of one to five like you know I believe evil spirits possess me at times and I occasionally fall into like uncontrollable crying or laughing spells and like I think stealing is okay and you know it was it was kind of questions like like you'd have to be like a sociopathic ex-murderer to screw it up, frankly. Katie aced the rest of the application. She got the fertility drugs delivered to her house, and then she started injecting herself with hormones with the help of her roommate and her boyfriend. And then finally the big day arrived. She'd made a bunch of eggs that a doctor needed to take out of her ovaries. So a car service drove her from L.A. to San Diego, where the intended father was going to add his sperm to Katie's egg, and where the intended mother was going to have those embryos transferred to her. When I woke up after the procedure, I was in this weird waiting room I'd never seen before. It was like kind of like like dark and not as much nice art on the walls or, or you know, sculptures or anything. And some nurse was kind of like, okay, like you need to rest here for a while and then we'll go get your companion and we'll lead you out this like back way. And so I think that, you know, the nice waiting room was sort of for the paying contingent of the donation. Um, But I do think that, um, you know, I think it worked right away. A lot of times they they'll take the best looking embryo and they'll implant it in the intended mother and it won't take. And so they'll kind of go from there. but I, I believe she got pregnant pretty immediately and got pregnant with triplets. And wow. yes, and I didn't find this out at first. Um, they kind of, I, they sent me back to LA. They gave me some birth control to sort of like get myself back on schedule. Um, and I went back and I started immediately having fainting spells. After the break, we'll hear more about the side effects Katie suffered after her donation and how she feels about being an egg donor nine years later.
Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt-free. Hello, fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello? Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. We were so happy that IVF and on got some attention. One of the most exciting things that happened was that it landed on Atlantic's top 50 podcasts of 2017. They called our marriage, quote, passive aggressive. Very good, accurate review. (laughs) (laughs) Ringing endorsement. And after all those reviews and messages, we realized that there was one thing we forgot to ask of you guys, which is to review us, to rate us. Yeah, we forgot to do the most basic thing, which is ask you to go to the iTunes store and give us five stars and a nice little recommendation. If IVFML helped you feel heard, it helped you find your community, or if it helped you come up with a way to explain your situation to family and friends, please let us know. You can reach us at IVFML at HuffPost.com. A lot of you guys have already reached out. Again, that's IVFML at HuffPost.com. Thanks. When we last heard from Katie, she'd completed her egg donation and had successfully helped a couple get pregnant. But once she got home, she started suffering from fainting spells. Katie called the egg donation agency, who then set up a phone call between her and the fertility doctor from La Jolla. He asked her a bunch of questions that mostly had to do with bleeding. And then he said she didn't have ovarian hyperstimulation syndrome and hung up. Now remember, the whole reason Katie was doing this egg donation in the first place was because she didn't have health insurance. So she wasn't about to pay out of pocket to see a new doctor and check if she was all right. So she lived with it and hoped it would go away. And thankfully it did. Katie stopped fainting. But she said that she never forgot how they made her feel once the egg retrieval was over. My feeling was they got their stock like they're done with me. I was also not an easy donor. You know, I didn't take the drugs right. I didn't produce that many eggs. You know, no one was like begging me to do it again at that point. But shortly after that, I got a message from the donation coordinator saying, great news, um, you know, they're, they're pregnant with triplets. Isn't this fantastic? Good job. You'll get your check in the mail soon. Because you don't, you don't get your check until after they retrieve the eggs. So if something goes wrong before then, you could actually be on the hook to pay money back to the intended parents and or the agency. Whoa. Yeah, it's kind of like a small print detail that no one spends too much time on. That actually wasn't the last time Katie and the egg agency spoke. In December 2017, she was diagnosed with melanoma and had the cancer removed from her skin. She got in touch with the agency to let them know about it. Even though she'd had a bad experience, she still felt some kind of familial connection to the child that had been created from her egg. She wanted the parents to know their kids now had a family history of skin cancer and they should be really diligent about sunscreen. So in the end, when you look back on this time, it's been almost 10 years, what do you think about what you did? I mean, I really wish that I had read between the lines and been 
a savvier 25 year old and thought and realized, you know, there have been no health studies about this because no one has funded any health studies about this because this is just an extremely unregulated field. Since then, I haven't been formally diagnosed with endometriosis, but, you know, ultrasounds show I have a lot of endometrial scar tissue. Um, My menstrual cycles became significantly more painful um, in the years that followed. Um, And then, you know, I'm pretty sure the melanoma cancer was the son's fault and not the fertility drug's fault, but I do wonder. So yeah, I think it's it's a weird thing. And I think that um, it's kind of a, it's an agency that relies on, um, you know, showing shiny, happy pictures of of motherhood, like this great American dream of fully realized motherhood to young women and, and kind of saying, you're, you're pretty and a good person, right? Like you want to make this happen without sort of fully disclosing um, how invasive it is, uh, the fact that your, your money is going to be heavily taxed. You will be considered both employer and employee of your ovaries. And yeah, I just, I just, I don't, I don't think there's much informed consent. And so I, I'm actually kind of bitter about it. Uh, how much money did you end up with after taxes? About 5500 And what did you use that money on? I mean, did you ever get that ambulance hospital bill? That was kind of a funny story. I Right after I got the check, I got a notice from the hospital saying that I qualified for some like low income program and I only owed them like $125. So I bought a car. <laughs> oh my God. <laughs> I think one of the best conversations I've ever heard about egg donation is fictional. I watched the Netflix movie Private Life, which is about this infertile couple in New York who asked their niece to donate some eggs to them. And the niece is this young 25-year-old woman named Sadie, who is played by Kaylee Carter. And in this scene, she's talking to her mom and trying to defend her decision to donate her eggs to her aunt and uncle. The mom, whose name is Cynthia, is played by Molly Shannon, and she isn't having any of it. I am worried about you, Sadie. You could be squandering your future fertility for all you know. My God, you should be freezing your eggs, not selling them. That's absurd. Tons of girls do it and they're fine. Anyway, I'm not having kids. You do not know that now. Yes, I do. I don't want kids. I want a career. You can have both. What? Do you know how many times you've told me that women have to sacrifice things when they have kids? That you had to drop out of school when you had me? Look, I get my period every month, and I flush an egg down the toilet. Why not give some to Richard and Rachel? What could be more meaningful than me giving two people that I love who are desperate to start a family the gift of life? Oh, my God. They've brainwashed you. Okay, so why do you like that conversation? Well, because to me, it captures the tension between these two different points of view about the eggs that we have. Like, I'm infertile. There's always been a lot of drama around my eggs, like how to make them better, how to get more of them, how to best fertilize them and transfer them back. I mean, that's why to me, my egg cells are precious. They're so precious that I couldn't possibly put a price tag on them. And I honestly can't imagine sharing them with other people, even people I already know and love. And then there's Sadie, who's this young character in the film. She's ambivalent about having her own kids, but she sees the people that she loves in pain. And she wants to help them by giving them something that she, as she said, throws away once a month. Right. And I guess that is a good situation for egg donation, being able to freely give something, these eggs you're not using, to someone who could use them and cherish them. And you know, it is it is an organ donation, really. And that's kind of how it was with Sue. But Katie's donor circumstances weren't like that. 
She was under financial duress, and she sold the most valuable thing she had at the time. It just happened to be inside of her body. And she had no emotional connection, no warmth or anything, you know, with the people that she was helping. Mm -hmm. I think it's tough because in America, I mean, policy-wise, we think that healthcare is a privilege, not a right in this country. So her situation almost doesn't feel voluntary. And as an infertile person, I felt extra sad listening to her story. Yeah, okay, let's let's dig into that because I, I totally get the you know, frustration about U.S. healthcare, but I'm not totally sure why you as an infertile person sort of feel responsible because we didn't use a surrogate or a donor sperm or eggs, and I don't think we ever even got close to considering it. So what about that conversation makes you personally feel so bad? Like, why are you feeling guilty over something that you didn't cause? Well, I think it's because when I hear Katie's story, you know, I hate the way that she was treated. And yet the person who I identify with in her story is the infertile woman, the intended parent. I can so easily imagine myself paying someone like Katie for her better eggs and honestly not asking too many questions about how it got made. I mean, I do that for basically every other purchase in my life. Right. Yeah. And the way the sperm and egg donor sites work, it does feel like shopping or a dating app. Like they are people, they are being described, but it's sort of about like, what's the right match for me? What are my needs? Like you're definitely thinking more about this person as a fantasy than as a real person. Mm -hmm. Like I'm on this cryobank site right now looking at donor profiles and it makes me feel all giddy and happy and excited. I'm imagining their faces and lives and idealizing everything. Yeah, so I do see how easy it is for a system like this to lead to unethical outcomes like Katie, and also just as easily lead to happy outcomes like Brian and Sue. So I guess the question we should really ask is, is there anything we can do to make things fairer and safer? Like, what would make this better? Yeah. Okay, so I already said that Katie was my friend, but we weren't that close, even though we saw each other every day at work. It wasn't until she wrote about her experience in a feature for BuzzFeed that I learned about any of this. That piece got a ton of attention. Katie was on TV news, she was interviewed by a bunch of other news outlets, and she actually ended up becoming an expert on this issue by writing more on the topic. I asked her what she thought needed to change about egg donation to make it a more consistently ethical process. Well, we need a lot more standardization and unification in the industry. I mean, there are really no rules at this point. There is, you know, one sort of governing-ish body, um, the ASRM, and they put forth guidelines about how egg donation agencies and clinics should operate. And so, you know, there are rules like, oh, you know, a donor shouldn't donate more than six times within the same 100,000 miles so that, you know, she doesn't breed a bunch of half-siblings that end up dating and like procreating themselves, you know, consanguinity concerns. But aside from that, I mean, there's re there's really no um, standard protocol for how it's done, no rules. I mean, you hear of you hear of women being jacked up to produce like 60 plus eggs and getting really, really sick and, you know, of like of places that will 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 in fact let you donate 10 times. Um, and so I think that we need we need some standardization there and we need a registry of women who've donated. So, you know, so, so someone's keeping track and, and seeing, you know, where, where, where's your health a year down the line, five years down the line, 10 years down the line um, so that we can kind of start to detect those patterns. And we need some old fashioned research into, in, you know, like the government should 
grant some money into researching um, the effects of egg donation and of taking fertility drugs um, for people who don't technically need them. Some of what Katie's describing here is starting to happen. We heard from Professor Diane Tober earlier, who described the lack of research into long-term effects of egg donation. Well, for the past several years, Professor Tober has been conducting a survey of egg donors. She only has 160 interview subjects so far, but she's just gotten a federal grant and is hoping to create the world's first comprehensive data set looking at the long-term health and happiness of egg donors. This means that someday we may actually have a more scientific answer to the questions that we asked at the start of this episode. Is donating eggs and sperm worth it for these donors? Do people regret it? Here's what she's learned so far. Most of the egg donors that I've talked to do want to someday meet the children born from their eggs or they're at least open to it. Very few, less than about 5%, didn't want to someday meet the children born from their eggs. And most of them have this perspective that, well, they have a right to have access to their information and they have a right to know that portion of their identities and they have a right to, um, you know, have medical information, have a curiosity satisfied, whatever. So most most egg donors that I've spoken to not only agree to have their medical information shared, but also are fine with having their identities revealed as well. Did you get the sense that um, any of the women thought of these children born from their eggs as their own children? Yes and no. So, for example, in the in the very beginning, when women first donate their eggs or first provide eggs and they find out a baby is born and so on, they experience a lot of joy, a lot of satisfaction that they helped do that. Um, and and also, you know, a sense of like, wow, I'm so glad that I was able to do that for somebody else to help give somebody else that that gift, so to speak. And then many of the women that I've interviewed later on, so 10 years, 17 years, 18 years or whatever later, has said, you know, at the time when I donated, I didn't think of those as my children. But now that I have my own kids, I really wonder about them. And I wonder about, you know, what would it be like for my kids to meet their biological half-siblings? Or, and some have even said that um, when they did not have their own kids and were not able to have children after egg donation, uh, some actually said that they felt like they sold their children. So there's a range, the range of responses is, is, is individualistic and it's, and it's varied. And, um, you know, some people feel like they are their kids to some degree and some don't, but I do see changes over time. And that's what the data is showing me so far. And also um, people I see are coming up with different terms of kinship for the children born from their eggs. So for example, many um, will say, well, I have egg babies out there, you know? And so uh, so they're coming up with different ways Sorry. of thinking about this category of child that is theirs and not theirs at the same time. For now, we can finish up our own tiny survey with Brian and Sue. Even though they feel great about what they did, Sue and Brian aren't sure if they'd wholeheartedly recommend donation. I think be really clear about why you're doing it. I don't think, I mean, speaking from a huge place of privilege, I would not recommend doing egg donation purely for the money. It's too emotionally and physically fraught to do just for that. And it's frankly not enough money to be worth it in that way. There are other things you could do to try and get that amount of money. Um, but if you really think through why you're doing it and feel comfortable with 
the emotional and physical risks. I think it can be a, um, I don't even know. I don't know that I would recommend it exactly. Like I found it to be a positive thing ultimately, but there's a lot of chance involved with it. And the reward is a pretty limited like psychological reward depending on your perspective. So I would want to make sure that somebody felt fully prepared for that. Well, at the same time, I think it's an important and valuable thing to do. So I like would want people to be egg donors, but just to, I think it's hard because the target audiences for both of these sorts of things are like young people who are kind of strapped for cash and that's a sort of vulnerable population. Um, and I think on the male side of it, it's very low risk. So fine. You want to go jerk off into a cup for a hundred bucks, go for it. Um, but for women, just to think about like why you're doing it and do you feel like you're going in eyes wide open? Awesome. Um, or do you feel like you're desperate and maybe this would be, you know, an okay thing to do? Um, feel informed and empowered in doing it. And on, on my side, like, it's funny to hear you say like on the, on the men's side, like if you want to go jerk off in a cup, go do it. Nobody wants to jerk off in a cup. Like <laughs> that's the thing to keep in mind is like, I don't regret what I've done. It was not a fun <laughs> process and like, get ready for an activity that I'm not going to make assumptions about everybody, but like, I'm assuming that you've enjoyed for a while now to become like something you're dreading. Yeah. I think one of the recurring jokes about your sperm donation is like, don't make your passion your job. <laughs> it really ruins it. And Sue and Brian's donation story isn't over yet. They both know that there could be another chapter still to come. Sue, you know, you don't know the outcome of the viable pregnancy. And Brian, you don't know the outcome of all the sperm donations. Do you ever think about those genetically related offspring out there and, you know, what you'll do someday if they want to talk to you? Yeah, I mean, I tend to I'm assume the positive and assume that there is some little kid, I guess, like five year old now in Texas, potentially, who's half me, which is just like a weird and fascinating thing to think about. Um, I mean, I would be delighted to talk to them at any point if they ever wanted to. I work with kids um, in my career and I love kids. And I think even, you know, maybe what the worst case scenario is that they're really unhappy or something. Right. But um, I would, I would be honored to to get to talk to them. I, I would be excited to, but I also don't like think about it that often or want to pin any hopes on that or any obligations on that kid. I think about it less often than I would have expected when I signed up for this. Um, Cause it was, everybody would ask me about it and, and I did an open donation. So when the kids turn 18, they will be given like my name and address and like email address and they can reach out to me. Do they, is it like given to them? Like there's like a letter arrive, like a Hogwarts thing, like you're 18, this is who your sperm donor was? Or is it like when they turn 18, they have, they can reach out to find out? Do you know? I think that, I, I don't know. I, I, my assumption from what I went through is that they would have to reach out. Mm -hmm. It's not, because here's the thing. Some people wouldn't want to know. Like you, you said, like you think about that there's a kid out there who's half you. I don't think about kids. They're, these kids aren't half me. Genetically, the, the half the, their genetic makeup comes from me. Right. But they're not my kids. Like I don't feel at all 
like I am these children's parent. Like I am, I helped, I did my part and I'm like interested in them. And if they have any questions for me about who I am or like where I come from, I am happy to answer those questions. And and one of the reasons I signed up to do an open donation as opposed to a close, because I had the option of doing both is that if these kids, there's some part of these kids genetic makeup that is me. And so if any of them is like me at all, the idea for me, if, if this was some mystery, like where half of my genetic makeup came from, it would drive you crazy. I would go nuts. I would have gone insane. Like I'm happy to be there to answer that question and to be as open and, and honest about all that as I can be. Um, but it's not like I feel like in 13 years or whatever, I'll have all my kids back. <laughs> like, So hearing these stories, how are we feeling about the role of sperm and egg donors in this process? For me, I feel like there's something fundamentally beautiful about the donor process. There's this idea that someone can give this part of themselves and help someone else create a family. Like, it's a really wonderful thing, especially the way Brian and Sue describe it. But then the money gets involved and it all gets messier. And we end up with situations like Katie where one family's miracle is someone else's desperation. Yeah, it's like I want there to be some utopian version where everyone donates because they want to, not because they have to. Once for a story I wrote, I interviewed a woman who was from a very small ethnic religious sect, and she felt like it was her duty to continue donating eggs because people from her ethnic group struggled to reproduce, and she felt like It was her contribution to helping her culture stay alive. But realistically, I know that that utopia is probably going to have fewer people donating. As an infertile person, I'm really grateful that these slick websites exist where I can comparison shop for sperm and use search filters to find six-foot-tall Filipino Jews to father my children. I would like you to stop reading those profiles and fantasizing about other men's sperm. I will take that under advisement. We want to thank Brian and Sue Andres Brown, Katie O'Reilly, and Professor Diane Tober for their help today. And we hope that someday every sperm and egg donor will be able to look back on their experience with the same zen and confidence that Brian and Sue have. There's so many things in the world that are really unfair, and most of them you can't do anything about. And if we had like one small tiny drop in like mitigating some unfairness for one family, or in Brian's case, dozens of families, um, that's, that's a cool thing to be able to do. We went out and had breakfast with our kids today, and that was awesome. And the idea that somebody else out there got to go have breakfast with their kids today and that we helped that happen, I'm good with that. IVFML Becoming Family is produced and edited by Anna Almendrala, Simon Gans, Nick Offenberg, and Sarah Patterson with additional production this episode from Kevin Lee. Hold up. 
Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt free. Hello, Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. 